Chevy Equinox with forward collision alert, automatic emergency braking, and available all-wheel drive. It's my ultimate mobile device. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com to schedule a test drive. Chevy Equinox. It's your choice. Own it. State Player 720 WGN. So Joe Satriani is the world's most commercially successful solo guitar performer ever. With six gold and platinum discs to his credit and sales in excess of $10 million. Some of Joe's students, Kirk Hammett, the lead guitarist for the small indie band you might have heard of, Metallica. Steve Vai, formerly of Frank Zappa, Whitesnake, and David Lee Roth. Third Eye Blind's Kevin Cadogan, to name a few. Satriani's 19th studio album, The Elephants of Mars, showcases an exciting new energy, traveling through stylistic roads that feel freshly updated and viewed through new eyes. And starting in January, Joe Satriani, Eric Johnson, and Steve Vai, three legendary guitarists, will reunite for their first G3 tour in over 25 years. And to talk about it all is Joe Satriani. Hey, Joe. Hey, thank you very much for that amazing introduction. <laughs> did I, did I, I cover it all? <laughs> you covered it all. I was like hearing trumpets and violins in the background and kettle drums and everything. Nice, great. nice, nice. I like that. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I love the backstories, the very beginnings in someone's career. You know, you first picked up the guitar when you were 14. What, what brought you to want to play? What inspired you to play? Oh, uh, you know, um, in, in, I used to think it was just like one moment, uh, you know, like hearing the first Hendrix song on the radio, that kind of thing. But uh, part of the cathartic process of doing this book um, brought to light the fact that it was a lot of little things. You know, growing up as the, the youngest in a family with, with five kids who were all into music, and uh, they were you know, living through the 60s as I was just a little kid playing in the back of the room, sort of watching it all, uh, inheriting all their records as they grew up and left the house. Ah. Um, you know, I was a drummer at age yeah. nine. And, you know, um, my older sister, uh, not, not that much older than me, uh, I've got three sisters, and but she um, was a folk guitar player. Um, so, um, you know, I actually had proximity, you know, growing up with someone else in the family who played guitar. Um, my older brother was also very musical. Um, my mother played piano. So, you know, when I look back and I, I realized, wow, there was a lot of, uh, maybe not pushing and prodding, but I had a lot of influences early on. So I'm not sure it, it really surprised anyone in the family when I really stood up that evening and said, Hey, you know, because Jimi Hendrix died, I'm going to be a guitar player, and I'm going to start right now, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Right. Well, you said you heard you, 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 you got a lot of your brothers and sisters' records. So, out of, you know, out of what you were listening to, like, who inspired you? You mentioned Hendrix. Who, el- who else inspired you at that time? Well, um, that period, third-generation electric blues players, you know, Hendrix, Beck, Clapton, Page. Uh, I heard a lot of uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Of course, Beatles and Stones were huge. There was um, a ton of Motown uh, and soul music being played in my house. And, of course, those guitar players, they didn't really have a, a name and an image that uh, that we knew about um, as much as, let's say, the rock guitar players who were sure. being heralded as, as, you know, guitar heroes at the time. Um, on the jazz side, probably Wes Montgomery was my biggest uh, influence. That was, you know, my parents' music. That, that's what they listened to. They were of the jazz age. Sure. Um, uh, but, you know, I, that's what I was listening to. And, and you know, I would play a lot of, uh, you know, Robbie Krieger stuff because we were into the doors. We, uh, As I said, a lot of Beatles and Stones. Tony Iommi, you know, the Black Sabbath it was a very big influence. 
um, and Richie Blackmore, uh, you know, all the usual suspects that you would you would guess somebody from my uh, generation would latch on to. They all became part of my uh, musical roots, and that's kind of like where I built my style. Well, you mentioned Jimmy Page, but at some point, you redirected yourself to play solo and more instrumental music. Yeah, you know, that didn't really come uh, until uh, I was, you know, uh, an older, uh, young adult, let's say. I'm living out in California, and I started to think that some of the music I was making at home, recording on a four-track, um, would be worth releasing. And it was stuff that I was doing for personal development. But if I go back to those, you know, the early 70s, starting in 1970, I was always in a rock and roll band that was trying to imitate Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath or Deep Purple. Um, that's what we always played. And, we, you know, and we, would, we would swing into David Bowie and T-Rex because we were into that, too. And um, I didn't, you know, although I spent some time uh, studying bebop and and really getting into the guitar playing of John McLaughlin and Alan Holdsworth, I've always just been a rock guitar kid from Long Island. You know that was I I never forgot who I really was. Yeah. I never yeah. that I never left me. So I you know I learned classical music theory. I learned bebop, and these things just added to my core personality as a player. Right, it brought everything uh, together it, for you. I mean, from all the experiences and all the different types of music. I mean, it just kind of formed who you were. Or who you are? Yes, and you know, um, you you know that's a very good observation because um, what you point out is is really that's what that's the story of a lot of players. If you were talking to Jimmy Page, he would tell you about all the kinds of music that he was growing up listening to: skiffle music, early rock and roll. And although we may not hear it in the Zeppelin, that's actually what's you know the foundation of his style: all those early influences. Now. Your journey began with your 1986 album that was not of this earth, which which I love the story. You funded it using a pre-approved credit card with a five thousand dollar credit limit. Uh, obviously, very determined to get this album made. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> crazy idea. If anybody's listening to this part of the interview, do not follow this. Uh, oh, why path. not? But I mean, that's a dream. You're following a dream and you, you had a mission in your head that that's, you know, that was your first album and that's how you were going to get it done. Hook or crook, man. This is what you were going to do. Oh, see, now you haven't mentioned that the, the rate on that card was 19.8. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I was I'm killed by those fees, you know, and uh, I was trying to pay it off slowly. Uh, but yes, it, it was a godsend, and it was kind of creepy because um, that the day that card arrived, I had just gone around town trying to get what we call a spec deal, where uh, studios and engineers uh, will front you the, their time and energy, and then you pay them back once you get a deal. And of course, they thought, well, you'll never get a deal, so forget about spec time. And I remember returning home sort of dejected, just thinking, you know, this is never going to happen. And I'm going through my mail, and lo and behold, there's this free credit card, you know. So I thought it was a sign from heaven, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. Man, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, but it did work out. But I, as I pointed out in the book, it was a rough road towards the end there. The album got done. And uh, before I got involved with uh, Relativity, uh, and and the album was sort of uh, going to be put out on my own label, which was really just a you know a, a shell of a company that I operated out of my uh, my apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, I got saved by that Great Kin gig. Great Kin, you know, they were recording what would what became their last album on EMI. They had a nice big budget, but their guitar player had some health problems, and they called me uh, that you know that same week where I was about to default on on that credit card debt, and um, and said, hey. Please help us out. Finish the album. If you hang out with us for another year, we'll pay you this great salary just to save us, you know, because we, we can't afford not to, to finish the record and go out on tour immediately. And it, it just fell on my lap, and it saved my economic situation. It know? saved your economic situation, but was that tough for you to say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of want to do this out on my own. It's, it's you know, I just put out my album, but... Was it was it more about the economics? Was it Was it okay for you? Did you feel okay about playing with another band? I did because um, it was the Greg Kinban, and, yeah. and uh, I knew uh, Greg and Steve and, and the guys in the band for a very long time because my my local band, the Squares, had been opening for them for four or five years, and so uh, we were very close to them. They were a local band. Um, they had had a, a huge success with that song, Jeopardy, um, right. and uh, it, it you know they had asked. I think about three years prior to that, they asked me to join the band, and I kind of said no because I had my own band. I wanted to stay loyal. Uh, so it wasn't that far-fetched that I would say yes to, to Greg and Steve. Uh, and at the time, Pat Mosca was on keyboards, and Tyler Ring uh, was playing drums. It was actually a really good band, and Greg uh, was really on the top of his game. He was, he was just a born front man, a great rock and roll singer. And uh, they were so easy to play with um, that it, it was actually a lot of fun. And then I could, like, exhale for a moment. <laughs> right, right, and breathe a little bit. Well, we are talking to legendary guitarist Joe Satriani, and there's more after the top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom here on 720 WGN. Dave Plyer on 720 WGN, and we're talking to iconic musician, guitarist Joe Satriani. So we were just talking a little bit about the uh, the Greg Kinn band, and um, it was also at a time that Mick Jagger reached out to you. Yeah, boy, what a crazy turn yeah. of events. You know, it was uh, January uh, of 88. Um, oh, actually, let me step back just about two more months. Uh, Surfing with the Alien gets released, my second record. Mm-hmm. 87. Relativity. And uh, Barry Coburn, the president at the time, said, you know, um, we've released the record, not quite sure where it's going to go, but you should probably go out on tour. And I, I pointed out to him that I had never performed as an instrumental solo artist. I had no idea what to do. I said, I don't have a band. I don't even know what to do when you walk out on stage. I'm, I'm a guy who plays in a rock and roll band yeah. with a singer. You know? So he said, well, you better figure it out because, you know, we're going to sell in some of these things and you got to show up. So I begin to think, okay, I got to do something, you know? So, um, I called these guys and, um, uh, that I had played with over the summer just for a NAM show event in Chicago. So that would have been Stu Ham and Jonathan Mover. And we kind of just were winging it. We really didn't know what to do. And we started this tour. It was going to be about three weeks. Uh, we're on, uh, I think we started down in San Diego, but we wound up on the East Coast. Um, I remember uh, having a meeting with uh, my tour manager who pointed out that we were losing about $8,000 a week. Oh. Uh, and it was, you know, and like by the time I got home, it, I was screwed, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Oh, God. Playing a show in Boston, freezing, you know, in, in uh, uh, like Chicago in, in early January. And uh, all of a sudden I get this call uh, from my friend who's working for 
uh, Bill Graham presents, uh, and he says, hey, you know, uh, we're putting on the Jagger tour, and they're looking for a lead guitar player. They've been through 50 guys, and they can't find the right guy. Do you want to audition? And I, I thought, oh, this is the funniest thing ever. <laughs> Either a good joke, or I'm just going to say yes, just so I can meet Mick for five minutes. It's it's fate, order. brother, because this has happened all throughout your career, at least your early career. I mean, this is exactly the path that you uh, have been on. It, it's, you know, this is the thing, these are the things that happen. It ha- it's like with Chicken Foot and so many oh. episodes of my life. They just, out of the blue, these things happen. And so I did, I, I was actually um, going to be in New York anyway. We had four shows at the bottom line. They were sold out. Um, and it was it was the only part of our tour that was actually um, a triumph, you know, was that New York City uh, stay. And so I just, I went a day early. I started the audition, Mick comes running in the room. He says, this sounds amazing. I love what you're doing. Let's keep going. And we just, suddenly we were best buddies and, and we were having a great time and he invited me to stay in the band. And, um, you know, what he didn't know, of course, was that I was looking at this Surfing with the Alien tour that was losing money because even though the record was climbing up the charts, I had no story, as we say, in, in the music industry. Well, you were building it. You were building it now. Yeah, uh, so I wasn't really trusted by all the clubs and theaters in, uh, around the world. So we couldn't get gigs, even though the, the record was really doing a lot of uh, climbing up the Billboard charts. So um, this was a great place for me to take a break, to go back to being a guitar player in a band with a singer. And, you know, oh my God, what a singer. It's Mick Jagger. I mean, it's Mick Jagger. I mean, that must have been surreal. It was very surreal. Uh, and the coolest thing about it, and, and people ask me this all the time, but Mick was such a cool guy. He totally exceeded all expectations of, you know, what you might have meeting a famous person uh, and an enormously popular uh, musician. He just had more talent and more good stuff than I would have imagined, you know, and I was prepared to kind of think, uh, you know, he's just a rock star, you know, yeah. uh, but he wasn't, and uh, he he remains a good friend, and he he just continually blows me away. I saw him just a few months ago when they came through um, the Bay Area and played uh, Oakland, and you know, he's backstage. He's the same guy he was that I met back in '88, and on stage he was even better, you know, than than I'd seen him sing uh, years before. Um, so that that was such a a great experience that year of doing those two. Very big tours with him uh, in uh, in Japan and then Australia, New Zealand, uh, Indonesia. Uh, fantastic experiences for someone like myself. And he gave me freedom to to uh, you know do what I wanted to do in the band. I was the lead guitar player, reflecting all the lead players uh, across his career. So I didn't really have to try to play like Keith Richards. He he was always telling me to just be myself. Um, and, you know, when I got back from that first tour, the surfing record had really taken off. And all of a sudden I had this boost because I was with Mick. I was suddenly in Rolling Stone, the Wall Street Journal, this magazine. I was on MTV. You know, it put I you out there. I was a struggling guitar teacher, um, you know, a few months earlier. And then uh, all of a sudden I wasn't. I was somebody people actually people started to figure out how to pronounce my last name. I was impressed. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, you mentioned being a teacher, though, but I mean, you taught, uh, you know, the list of people that you taught is is, is mind-blowing. Just Steve Vai to begin with, but, you know, Metallica's Kurt Hammett, uh, Counting Crows David Bryson, J- jazz fusionist uh, Charlie Hunter, Larry Lalonde from Primus, uh, Alex Skolnick from Testament, 
uh, Kevin Cadigan from Third Eye Blind. Steve Vai, tell, tell, tell me how Steve Vai came to you and, and learned from you. Um, well, this is such a great story. Uh, Steve and I go way back. We're just sort of like, you know, spirits connected at this point. Um, uh, I uh, went to a public high school called Car Place High School in the middle of Long Island in Nassau County. And less than a mile away from me is this other kid growing up, Steve I. And uh, I suppose I think the first time that he heard about me was through his friend, John Sergio, who was taking guitar lessons from me. He'd seen me play at a local high school dance or some parties. And when Steve asked him, I want to really get into guitar. I don't want to play accordion anymore. I want to play guitar. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, well, you got to go to my guitar teacher, you know? And so Steve literally showed up. I mean, I get it. You know, I hear my doorbell ring. I go down to the front door and there's this kid holding a guitar in one hand with no strings on it and a pack of strings. And he says, Oh, hi, I'm John Sergio's friend. Can you teach me how to play guitar? So, um, I was just about, I think I was 15, maybe 15 going on 16 at the time. And I said, well, yeah, sure, why not, you know? And that was the beginning of uh, a a wonderful friendship, uh, but also um, an eye-opening experience for me as a teacher. Because at that time, I was still teaching other kids who were all okay, but they were just your average beginners, just like I was, you know, struggling to learn how to play. But suddenly at this kid who was not ordinary at all. Steve was the kind of student that had everything figured out that you gave him last week just perfectly, you know, the following week. And I'd sit there and go, oh, my God, you actually learned the entire lesson. (laughs) You know, after about six months, I was thinking, like, this this kid's catching up to me so quickly. And that's what happened. After about a year or two, we became more like comrades, and I was turning over information that I had just learned a few months earlier to the student who really became uh, my brother, you know, with uh, my guitar brother. You know, that's the, the way that the relationship uh, progressed. And the little funny fact is that the lead singer in my band had a younger brother who turned out to be the lead singer in Steve's band. And they took the name of our band and they spelled it in reverse. That was their the way that they tried to copy us. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. How do you how do you accept the student under your tutelage? Like how do you you know like how do you like who, what's the process? What was that process for you? Did you have to see something in them? Did you like audition them? Did you sit down? Like what what was the process for you? No, you know I I never um, auditioned students like that. I taught uh, young kids that were my contemporaries. I taught little kids who made you know, may not have ever gone on to play guitar. Um, I taught some, what I called at the time, grown-ups, you know, some of some of my teachers from school, uh, friends of my parents who just wanted to learn how to play some songs on the weekends. I never discriminated against, uh, you know, what kind of a student they wanted to become, whether they just wanted to be a casual player or they wanted to become, like Steve, the greatest guitar player in the world. And that continued when I moved to Berkeley, California, and I sort of got roped into teaching again. I thought, you know, I'm just going to do what I did before. I'm going to I'm going to teach everybody, and they weed themselves out because if they come back for a couple of lessons and they haven't practiced, they get so much crap from me. They just <laughs> and leave in a huff, you know. And and to me, that's the gr- the best way to weed out a student body is let them leave on their own accord because that shows, you know, that they're serious or they're not. 
Well, we are talking to legendary guitarist Joe Satriani, and there's more after the top stories from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom here on 720 WGN. You taught so many, but then here we got 14 solo albums, which, you know, still my favorite is The Extremist. I, that's still the, the album that's closest and nearest, dearest to my heart. Then Crystal Planet, I, I love the new album in 2013, Unstoppable Momentum. But you have two Chicken Foot albums, and for those who aren't as familiar with Chicken Foot, share with us the credentials of some of your bandmates. Wow. Yeah, it is, it's a dream come true. You got Sammy Hagar as your front man, yeah. and of course, had such amazing career and and you just if you haven't read his book his book is very inspirational i think for any american it is the story of the american dreams through through the rock and roll lens but it really is a classic story of of rags to riches and success and i should point out that i played with him last night we had such a wonderful night at the Fillmore in San Francisco last night. Sammy Hagar, James Hetfield from Metallica, Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day, Pat Monahan from Train, uh, Nancy Wilson from Heart, myself. Wow. Uh, with some other local musicians like Vic Johnson uh, and Scott Matthews, and we we were playing. Um, we were, we were jamming for a cure for the Benioff uh, Hospital, Children's Hospital here in San Francisco, all acoustic. It was just fantastic. <laughs> it was such a great night. But at the, the heart of the event was was um, my friend Sammy Hagar, and he's really he really is uh, an amazing person and a great talent. Um, uh, you know, and of course, uh, his very close friend, uh, Michael Anthony, is a bass player in Chickenfoot, and of course, we all know... Mike. Chili Peppers. Yeah. Well, no, you know, Mike Anthony is the definitive Van Halen bass player. Yeah. That's the way, you know, um, that's the way I always think about him. A lot of people don't know he, he's, uh, you know, a trained trumpet player, played all through college. So he is a real musical guy. And um, people always ask me about how those chicken foot records come together, you know, between me and Mike. And I always tell them, you know, Mike and I never have to discuss anything because Mike comes totally prepared. And he, he, everything that goes in those ears of his, he knows exactly what it is, and he responds in a second. And he's just a great musician. Um, he just, but when you see him on stage, you think he's the, the most partied out, crazy bass player ever. That's awesome. And then I was jumping ahead. Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Chad Smith is also part of Chicken Foot as well. Yes, yes. He is not Will Farrell. He is in fact. <laughs> That's funny. And, yeah, well, you know, one of the things that was so interesting about the first time we got together, that was 2000, uh, what was it, 2008 in, in Vegas, mm-hmm. uh, weekend, uh, at the end of one of Sammy's shows at the Palms, uh, was that it, you know, Chad really came through as having the same rock and roll, rock route as the rest of us, and we really didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, I think everyone was looking at each other thinking, well, you know, Joe does plays like this and Mike plays like that, Chad plays like that. But when we got together, suddenly we played completely different when we're playing with each other. And I think about Chad as that evening is showing everyone that he was a powerhouse rock drummer, um, where maybe previously you thought he was sort of like a a snappy funk drummer. (laughs) You know, actually he's just a crazy rock and roll drummer and of course he went on to destroy drum kits all over the world with us as as part of his thing um besides being a, just a super drummer um uh, and a, and a good songwriter i mean that's the other thing is that we although i bring the songs into the chicken foot uh sessions primarily 
eventually everybody puts their hand in in writing these songs, um, Chad and Mike uh, as well. So um, it's a very dynamic band, and, and I'm really looking forward to doing another record. Um, yeah, yeah it's demos, an incredible collaboration, yeah, absolutely. It's always been a lot of fun playing with those guys. Well, you know, each and every one of your albums are unique in their own way, and over the years you've remastered so many of them. Let's talk about what the remastering process is all about. Oh, yeah, the remastering is is uh, an amazing tool. Um, for people out there who may not know exactly what it does, is after a band is finished in the studio mixing a record and, and they've got it into a stereo mix, they send it to a mastering engineer, and that mastering engineer in the old days would prepare it to transfer to vinyl. So there were things they had to do with, let's say, the low end, uh, the volume. They had to make sure that every song would, would hit those grooves at the proper volume, not so it wouldn't distort or the low end versus how much time was on each side of an album, crazy stuff like that. When we got into CDs and for a digital delivery, all that stuff uh, could be forgotten about, and then they could start to uh, just try to make the record sound what they called more competitive. That phrase actually started to take on a negative connotation because what that meant was they would make that music sound loud at any volume. Mm -hmm. And, what that really means in our terms as listeners of music is they squish that music down, they compress it, so it just sounds like it's always loud and in your face no matter where you're listening to it, on your earbuds, your computer, in the elevator, in the car, wherever it is, it sounds like it's screaming at you. And and especially pop bands were sort of um, forced into uh, making their records louder and louder and louder. So what happens when you go to do a retrospective is you realize, wow, listen to all these records from you know the last two decades, and you can almost point to the era because of that treatment that was that was given mm. to the from the mastering lab. So John Cunaberti went back and he said, you know what, let's make this sound like it sounded to us. You know, when we finished the record in the studio, when we were listening to the best, a high-fidelity version of it, before it went to the mastering lab, before they squished it and made it too bright or got rid of the low end for the vinyl, let's give the fan the full-body treatment, and let's make the whole catalog flow into each other so people can jump around or they can go, they can have a Satriani binge weekend and listen to everything all at once. <laughs> Oh, that's outstanding. That's outstanding. And I mean, it, it is an amazing collection of of all your your work. Before I let you go, I got to ask you, people, you know, people have called you the guitar player's guitar player. What advice do you have for the next generation of musicians who see you as an inspiration? Um, well, you know, I'm flattered. I always thought that the best thing you can do is, uh, you know, lead by example. And uh, I still practice every day. I love playing guitar. I love music. Um, I, I love being a musician. Um, I think that all musicians out there um, really should, you know, um, embrace the idea that uh, you, your fans out there will always want to see you strive for excellence, and they want you to be original. So there's no point in trying to homogenize into the trend. Just strike out on your own. Be original, whether you're with a band or you're a solo artist. Um, just get out there and play music for people, lift people's spirits. That's what they need from us. Joe, thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight, and uh, let's do it again soon. you got a lot more stories to tell. Thank you very much, Dave. It was a lot of fun talking to you. All right, Joe. Much more ahead on 720 WGN.